0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Best of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. As most of you know, we have recently pulled the listener counts for 1001 Heroes to find out where each of our 443 episodes ranks as a listener favorite and our two-episode story at the Lost Colony came in number four favorite of 443 episodes. The Lost Colony, which is the story of the unknown fate of 115 men, women, and children who volunteered to try to colonize the southeast coast of the U.S. in 1587, is the greatest unsolved mystery of North America. This was an exciting story for me because I was and am very familiar with the Outer Banks of North Carolina, I live in Virginia Beach, just about an hour and twenty minutes north of there, and I visit there often. And the Manteo area, where these first settlers built a fort and tried to manage relations with the local Indians. I've walked the grounds, studied the story, and as you'll find in Part 2, interviewed the researcher who helped break the story of just what did happen to this brave bunch of early pioneers, for that's what they were, pioneers in the true sense of the word. Part 1 opens with you, the listener alone, in the woods, trying to chisel a cry for help into a large stone, while remembering the excitement that you and your spouse felt when leaving the life you knew so well in London behind to join this group as they headed for unexplored territory in a new world. Your hope was that this message, that you belonged to a handful of survivors after an Indian attack, that your spouse was no longer with you, and that you had escaped inland, would be found by rescuers. I remember I couldn't find the right sound effect for the chisel as it chinked against that stone trying to form the letters needed, and finally found a glass ashtray that, when struck with the metal object, gave me just the sound we needed. A big thanks to all of you who have enjoyed this story, and to you newcomers who have joined us recently. Please review us kindly, and share. And now, The Lost Colony, Part 1, The Dare Stones. Imagine for a moment that you are a member of a colonization mission, organized and funded by your country, in this case England, which is bent upon colonizing new and undiscovered lands. This decision you and your spouse had made to carry the flag to this new and exciting land did not come easily. You would be leaving your friends and relatives, many of whom you saw for the last time, as you celebrated your wedding. And you were leaving the life of London you were accustomed to. But the new land to which you were headed promised adventure and new opportunity and should you ever decide to return to London you would both do so as heroes with stories to tell for a lifetime. The 115 people accompanying you on this voyage shared similar dreams and hopes for the future and they all seemed intelligent and capable. Time moves forward. The ship that has delivered you and your spouse has left. Your child is born to become the first English person to be born in the New World. Your contingent has built a community of crude but warm houses surrounded by a wall. But you spend the first winter in a very strange and lonely land, hungry, often wondering why you volunteered for this mission and waiting for the arrival of a ship carrying new supplies except the ship never arrives. Now, two long years have passed, witnessing one harrowing adventure after another, including the abandonment of your fort, constant and deadly Indian attacks, the death of many members of your party, and the splitting up of the remainder of the group into separate parties, each headed in different directions with different ideas of how best to survive whereupon you find yourself kneeling in the heavily forested wilderness at the edge of a river, miles inland, in a hostile and dangerous territory, chiseling your name and the names of those of your party who have died onto the side of a large quartz stone in desperate hopes that this stone and its message will reach your rescuers. It's the action of chiseling each letter that keeps your mind busy Too busy to accept the fact which your sinking heart already knows. That no one will ever see this stone. That your life as you once knew it has ended. And that you and your ever-shrinking contingent of survivors are now very alone and forgotten and left to fend for yourselves in a strange and uncharted wilderness. You finish hammering out your desperate message and enter your initials one letter at a time, E, W, D. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. The story of the Lost Colony is one of America's greatest unsolved mysteries and has received attention in scores of documentaries, books, and articles. To briefly recap, in 1587, the Queen of England sent an expedition to colonize the coast of what is now called North Carolina. Previous expeditions had brought back vivid descriptions of the area there on the east coast of a huge uncharted territory, the corners of which Spain had been successfully plundering for gold in the past 50 years, and on that eastern coast where Spain had not yet sailed, Queen Elizabeth wanted to colonize, and it was named Virginia after the Virgin Queen on her behalf. England's quest to the eastern shores of North America began in 1585. With an expedition led by Sir Ralph Lane, which included watercolor artist and map maker John White, whose job it was to draw the life of the inhabitants of the New World and their surroundings. White set to work and was befriended by the Indians, who allowed him to draw them, their villages, their pursuits, in detailed watercolor. One of those Indians who took the English under his protective wing was Chief Mantio, a Croatan, and another was Cheese, a sub chief of Mantio. Wanches and Manio even traveled with White to England and became overnight sensations in the court, staying at Raleigh's residence, Durham House. When all but 15 of Lane's colonists, including White, returned to England in 1586, Sir Walter Raleigh, who held the land patent for the proposed English colony of Virginia, tasked White with the creation of a new settlement, which would be self-sustaining and contain women and children. White was able to persuade 113 prospective colonists, including his daughter Eleanor and his new son-in-law, Ananias Dare, who had recently been married at St. Bride's Church at Fleet Street in London. Sir Walter Raleigh, who had underwritten the two previous expeditions to this region with hopes, some researchers believe, of having it provide a fortune in sassafras, a tree previously found to be thriving in that area, the bark of which, when extracted, provided a much-needed cure for syphilis, which gave him a vested interest in the fledgling colony. In May of 1587, White's group of colonists sailed for Virginia aboard the Lion, guided by a Portuguese captain named Simon Fernandez, the same man who piloted the earlier expedition and was given the nickname The Swine. The chosen destination this time was the Chesapeake Bay, not Roanoke, but Fernandez sailed them to Roanoke Island anyway, dropping them off, despite White's protests. At Roanoke, White set about repairing the structures they had left, searching for the 15 men who they had left behind, but found only one set of bleached bones. From the onset of this new expedition, there were tensions with at least one of the local tribes, but White's friend, Chief Mandio, explained that the 15 had been killed by hostile Sekotan, Aquasgokak, and Desamangapanka tribes. In retaliation, White staged a morning attack on what he thought were the Dasamangapankas, but succeeded in attacking friendlies, killing several people, including Mantio's mother, and wounding many. As it turned out, the Dasamangapankas had deserted their camp in fear of retaliation, and the friendly Croatans were scavenging the camp for what had been left behind. It was a screw-up of major proportions. Soon, one of White's men had been ambushed while crabbing, shot with arrows and then bludgeoned to death an act that no doubt hastened the building of tall palisades around the new settlement on august 18th 1587 john white witnessed the birth and christening of his granddaughter virginia the group of colonists was in dire need of more supplies and talked white into making the trip back to england he left instructions that should anything happen they were to leave a notice carved into a tree and the fort palisades that if it was a disaster or trouble, to leave the shape of a Maltese cross. He had also mapped out a location 50 miles inland, as was later discovered, almost due west, to which they could retreat if situations warranted, which would have placed them near modern-day Birdie County along the Chawan River. The origin of the Maltese cross is discussed in one of our archives at 1001 Heroes, and it's a good story. The ship that had delivered the colonists, as well as John White, returned to England after promising to return with supplies in the spring, bringing news to the queen that a child had been born at the new colony to one of the group, Eleanor White Dare, who named her child Virginia. This baby owned the unique distinction of being the first English child born in the New World and a cause for celebration. Hopes ran high, but weather and war quickly got in the way. John White's attempts to return to the colony failed one after another. And the Roanoke experiment went south fast, as did John White's hopes of returning, leaving the little colony on their own to survive for years on nothing but hope. No ships, no supplies, no food, no blankets, nothing to help the beleaguered colony came. When John White and his ship finally did reach the little fort three years later, it had been deserted, leaving one word carved onto the fort's palisades, Croatoan which was the name of a nearby island just to the south of them called Hatteras Island today. It shared a similar name to Mantio's tribe, the Croatan, who included the island in their seasonal wanderings, probably as a great source for all the things the ocean provided them. Shells for shaving their heads and eating their food and for decorating their persons. Oysters and clams for roasting, horseshoe crabs for tattoo ink, and fish for smoking. Another word, C-R-O, crow, had been carved into a tree outside the Palisades, possibly a backup in case the Indians destroyed the Fort Palisades and the message that they carried. Seeing the words Crow and Croatan probably meant to White that the colony had left the fort seeking the safety and protection of the friendly Croatan tribe. Weeds had grown over the grounds and the houses had been disassembled and carried off. The pinnace boat that had been left with them was missing and there were no Indians anywhere, although their footprints were found everywhere on the grounds. With a storm fast approaching, the men and their ship had to leave for safer waters, and in so doing, turned their backs on the lost colony for the last time, never to find out what had become of all those brave souls. Why a party was not designated to explore inland on foot at that time is not known or documented, at least in the records I've searched. I'm sure you're thinking, were it my son or daughter, I'd have gone it alone. For years, the mystery has remained unsolved, but every year, thanks to the tireless efforts of archaeologists, researchers, historians, and others, we get a little closer to knowing the rest of the story. There is an answer when you start piecing the puzzle together. We're going to give you the facts, all of them, let you separate fact from fiction, and come up with your own conclusion. In September of 1937, coincidentally the same year the play The Lost Colony opened in Mandio, North Carolina. A man named Lewis Hammond was driving in North Carolina along the banks of the Chewan River, about four miles from present-day Edenton, when he pulled off the road to examine some likely-looking hickory trees. As his story went, he was a produce dealer and looking for hickory nuts. While picking the ground for produce, he noticed an unusual stone with what looked like chiseled markings on its face, and bent closer to examine it. But although he recognized some of the words, others looked strange possibly from a much older time. He ended up taking the stone to Emory University, where they not only examined the stone, they investigated him. And then they returned the stone, saying, not interested. Hammond then found his way to Dr. Hayward Pierce at the Bruno College in Georgia, who identified the inscription on the rock to be written in Elizabethan English, and determined that the stone was very likely tied to the legend of the Lost Colony and that the initials E.W.D. were very likely those of Eleanor White Dare. Pierce was understandably excited. He was likely holding a clue to the outcome of the famed Lost Colony, a priceless artifact of history. We'll return to The Lost Colony, Part 1, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. The words chiseled on that stone contained a heart-rending message from Elizabeth White Dare, the daughter of John White. We left the actual words and letters written in the Elizabethan dialect of the time in a link in your show notes. I will translate here as best I can. Father, soon after you left for England, we came hither to this location and have seen only misery and war for two years. Over half of us are dead now, many from sickness. Twenty-four of us remain. A savage has come to us with news that a ship had arrived and that their people ran away for fear of men who might take revenge for what had happened. We don't believe it was your ship. Soon after we received this news, our group was attacked and all but seven of us were murdered, including my husband and daughter. All were buried four miles east of this river upon a small hill and their names written on a rock. Place this rock with them. A savage will show you this rock and was promised great presents for doing so. Signed, E.W.D. The stone, if it was genuine, tells us quite a bit. That the stone's author, Eleanor Dare, had survived with a group of 24 that was now whittled down to 7. A group that had either split off from the original group of 115 or was what was left alive of that entire contingent. The message also said that two years of warring and sickness had killed many of them and that her husband ananias and daughter virginia had been killed in a recent indian attack we can assume an effort to eliminate all of the survivors to prevent the possibility of retaliation the message also tells us where they were buried if you know where the stone came from and maybe it was possible that in her current state she didn't realize that her father would not have known where a hilltop four miles east of this river would be or possibly and more likely she purposely left the reference vague thinking that her father would assume she had retreated to the location he had originally given them and that if the stone fell into the wrong hands like that of the spanish her words wouldn't leave enough for them to cipher meanwhile pierce and his son began researching the authenticity of the stone immediately turning up among other things the fact that mallets and chisels had been provided to the colonists for their mission So the how pertaining to how Eleanor, if indeed it was her, was able to chisel the message onto both sides of the stone was answered. They then began an extensive search of the hill in North Carolina to which the inscription was trying to lead them, but had no luck in finding it. Pierce and his colleagues called in experts to study the stone. The language was competently declared to be Elizabethan in character, spelling, and idiom. Botanists said leaf mold in the grooves had been there a long time. The Smithsonian Institution said the rock showed no evidence of fraud. Professional stone cutters were asked to duplicate the wording on similar courts by shortcut methods – sandblasting, drilling, and acids. But they said it couldn't be done. But Professor Pierce still had reservations, conscious of past historical hoaxes. Stories of the find had now gotten out and were getting attention. After all, it was a major historical find, and people were excited. Soon, Professor Pierce begrudgingly permitted publication of the translation on January 31st, 1938. He soon received a letter from Captain J.P. Wiggins, a former mayor of Edenton, North Carolina, who, as a young man, had cut logs in the swamp east of the Chowan River. He remembered seeing, upon a knoll, a moss-covered stone he couldn't promise it was still there, but he would try to take Pierce to the stone. As the description seemed to fit into the stone's story, Professor Pierce went to Edenton on February 5th, 1938, and with Wiggins, searched in the swamp. The second day, they found the rock. An inch deep with moss, it weighed about 200 pounds. Moss was carefully removed, but no carving was found. When the university term ended, The younger Pierce, his father, and Wiggins returned and excavated beneath a rock, believing it might be an unmarked gravestone, but they found nothing. Both Pierce's then were still confident that the rest of the story was hidden in the edenton Chowan area, and in August they went back again, this time excavating the entire knoll. They paid labor for five days without uncovering anything significant. Old residents told the Pierces that in their youth, they had seen the mast of a ship above the swamp trees. Could this be the pinnace left with the colonists? In March, 1939, they made their fifth excursion to the swamp, a further waste of time. The Pierces had spent about $500 of their own money and dug up a few hills in the process. They were discouraged. They then offered a $500 reward, a fortune in the 30s requesting farmers and stone gatherers to search, but basically a message to anyone who could locate the second stone. And that's where things got complicated. In April of 1939, about 18 months after the finding of the first stone, William Bill Eberhard of Fulton County, Georgia, contacted Dr. Pierce, saying he had found 12 stones, but not in North Carolina. He said he'd been traveling in South Carolina, had a flat tire, and used a nearby stone for a jack stand while he changed the tire. When finished, he noticed it had writing on it. Looking around, he found 11 more similar stones. The location was a hillside in Grenville County, South Carolina, 12 miles south of Greenville, and on the Saluda River. The closest town, and it's a small one, is Peltzer. There one claimed to fame in being the boyhood home of Shoeless Joe Jackson, a story I keep telling you we'll get around to one day soon. Bill Eberhardt wasn't your top pick as a hoaxer, although anything was possible, and money was awfully hard to come by in those days. He was a single man in his mid-thirties who lived alone in an unpainted cottage with tar paper windows and had a third-grade education. Each of the stones contained a message in Elizabethan dialect, which when read as a whole told of the murders of 15 additional colonists including ananias and virginia dare and buried on this hillside near present-day Pelzer, south carolina a contradiction already to the first stone which placed the grave near edenton north carolina to deal with this contradiction the piercers theorized that an indian runner had been sent from here with the first stone back 200 miles toward roanoke island but for reasons unknown, had dropped the stone far short of his goal. More recent research tells us that the place where the first stone was found was fairly close to the location where White had told them to move to if they had to evacuate the original fort. This puts a wrinkle in the stones that followed the first, which we'll get back to as this mystery unfolds. The Peltzer Stones, as they came to be called, told of a 350-mile trek begun by 115 colonists to the Southwest through North Carolina into South Carolina, during which their numbers had been reduced to 24, then seven of which Eleanor was a part. The inscriptions indicated that she was now preparing to head further Southwest with some Indian guides and the remaining colonists. Pierce and his son immediately purchased the site of the hill where the stones had been found searching the ravine where the stones were originally located and concluding that the stones had probably been tossed down into the ravine while workers cleared the fields above for planting cotton. According to the Pierce's, they also had Eberhardt thoroughly investigated and as a test they offered him either the 500 in cash for the stone or 100 and half interest in the hill. He chose the 100 plus half interest in the hill which, according to Dr. Pierce, proved his innocence. If Eberhardt was a part of an elaborate hoax, he would have taken the quick money and run, according to Pierce and his son. Soon, another 34 stones turned up, many of them found by the now-expert stone hunter Eberhardt, who Dr. Pierce had sent to search along the Chattahoochee River in Georgia. This was 75 miles from the Saluda River site. Other individuals with no apparent connection to Eberhardt also located stones, and Pierce now had his hands full, following up on Leeds. The Stones told the story that the surviving seven had reached a peaceful haven amongst friendly Indians in the Nacoochee Valley area, a long time haven for Cherokee tribes in Georgia. Going so far as to say that it had been five years since they departed Roanoke Island, that the savages had shown much mercy and that they were living in primeval splendor. Names among the surviving seven matched those of names on the original roster of colonists. William Withers, Robert Ellis, Henry Barry, Thomas Ellis, and James Lacey, in addition to Eleanor. Another stone, carved by a different hand, credited Eleanor with a newborn daughter named Agnes. 48 stones was a lot of stone cutting, and almost all these stones were made of sandstone, not quartz like the original first stone. And the messages weren't being found just on stones, after one stone marked with Father, have savage show you great rock by trail indicated that the survivors had been living in a nearby cave a search turned up the great rock and a cave beneath where they found another inscription on the cave wall it was beginning to look like an elaborate elizabethan scavenger hunt with one clue leading to the next how john white from a rescue ship now 500 miles distant was supposed to hook up with the savage who was going to lead him here is a mind bender but stick with us, there's more. Meanwhile, doctors Pierce were getting a flood of attention with all these new stones being found. And in 1940, possibly feeling the heat of doubt and seeking to validate all this, they invited a committee of 34 persons to the Bruneau College in Gainesville, Georgia, where the stones now reside. And these were persons of note, including Samuel Elliot Morrison of Harvard, president of the American Antiquarian Society along with historians, educators, and scientists, to meet to examine the now 48 stones. The list was impressive enough to cast aside any doubt as to the authenticity of the stones. And as it turned out, the committee, after a full and lengthy inspection, determined that this, quote, preponderance of evidence points to the authenticity of the stones known as the Dare Stones, end quote. World War II then broke out, putting the kibosh on any further study, and Dr. Pierce Sr. died in 1943. His heirs, presumably his wife and son, sold the Pelzer Hill to a man named P.R. McLean for 700 To those seeking answers, a few early clues. Take note of the blue-eyed Lumbee Indians of the Lorenberg area of North Carolina, which is about 80 miles southwest of Fayetteville and very close to the South Carolina border and there are bearded Kiawi Indians living on the Chattahoochee in Georgia. As most of you know, most Indians do not grow beards. This doesn't mean the mixed blood dated back to 1592, but it's worth looking at as we go forward. But getting back to 1940, Dr. Pierce amassed everything he had and sent it to the Saturday Evening Post on December 13th of that year, writing on the stationery of Bruneau College in Georgia. In summing up the lengthy manuscript, he wrote, If a hoax it is, the hoax is more credible, more fantastic, than the story itself. The Post bought the Pierce manuscript, but ordered an investigation on their own, using the skills of an investigative journalist named Haywood Sparks, and pieces of his report are included here. I submit herewith article concerning my three-year investigation of the lost colony of Roanoke. A good deal has appeared in the press concerning this investigation, but this is my first presentation of the subject. The article modified the Post editor's previous skepticism, and they wrote to Dr. S. E. Morrison of Harvard for his judgment. He replied, I personally went to Gainesville to investigate the Eleanor Dare stones and believed them to be genuine, as did the other professors present. A geologist pronounced the inscriptions to be over 40 years old. They can't tell whether they're 41 or 401, however, and some of those stones have been knocking around farms of perfectly honest Georgians for the last 50 years, but were only produced when the story got around. The Post decided to buy Dr. Pierce's manuscript and sent it to me with an invitation to check his material. For companionship on the Georgia trip, I had my son-in-law with me. The stones are locked in the museum, a basement room in one of the main buildings of Bruneau. First sight of the relics is overwhelming, more than a ton of rock slabs, heavy to lift, tedious to decipher. I am not an Elizabethan scholar, geologist, historian, archaeologist, or paleographer, but I am a reporter. In writing an article, the professor had moved into my field. I thought we could get through in a day. It took longer. Before the end of my investigation, Pierce was calling me Hawkshaw. Haywood Pierce becomes resentful when his stones are challenged. When I set up one of his conjectures that it must have been an exceedingly friendly naked savage who had carried a 21-pound stone message across hundreds of miles of South and North Carolina, he scowled. I insisted, each swamp, then, was a maze, each stream an obstacle with that huge stone, each forest an ambush but he brightened when I said the stones ought to have great value to Gainesville and the college. I want my father to hear you say that, said Professor Pierce. He's the businessman around here, not me. Before we left the museum he had me re-examine the two parts of stone number 46. I was doubtful myself, he said, until we got this. Part was in a barn pillar for years, the other half stored in a tool chest miles away. Who can question this one? He gave it an affectionate tap. But in the next breath he was saying, I'm still open-minded. I never say they're authentic. It's too early. Introducing us to President Pierce, he said, Father, these gentlemen have intelligence and imagination. I want you to hear what they think. Bernal is a college for women, especially Baptist. In 1893, Pierce Sr. bought a half-interest, Later, he became sole owner. In 1917, he donated the college property to a self-perpetuating board of trustees upon condition an endowment fund be raised. In 1928, he executed a quit-claim deed. An alumna, Mrs. Aurora Strong Hunt, class of 82, gave to Bruneau the Dixie Hunt Hotel, valued at $250,000. A later bequest increased her gifts to $400,000. Last year, the board decided to continue the campaign until one million had been raised. The Pierce family runs Brunel. Pierce Sr. is president, Pierce Jr. vice president. Both, along with Mrs. Pierce Sr., the professor's stepmother, are trustees. Thomas J. Pierce, a son, is treasurer. Miss Ava Florence Pierce is dean and professor of English. A son-in-law of the president also holds an administrative position. My companion, an alumni of North Carolina and its law school, pestered Professor Pierce about the lack of interest at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, at Emory. Pierce said they were jealous. North Carolina people thought they owned Virginia Dare. And I'll add at this point the story of the Lost Colony play, which, as you heard, began in 1937, the same year the first stone was discovered not too many miles from the play location in North Carolina. The play, which I've seen a few times and can highly recommend, is still the number one tourist event on the Outer Banks. Andy Griffiths got his acting start there as Summerstock between college semesters. The writer of that play was Paul Green, who fell into Spark's spotlight early in the investigation. And why not? He had the motive and the means. Motive being the need to promote the new play. And what could do better than headlines announcing a huge new lead? to the mystery of the lost colonists. And the means, meaning that he was one of the few who had the skills to provide a forger with Elizabethan text and a plausible story. Sparks continues. So what about Paul Green? This playwright is a member of the faculty at Chapel Hill and author of The Lost Colony, a play produced each summer since 1937 on Roanoke Island within the palisaded walls of a restoration of old Fort Raleigh. Why had Green ignored the stones? Professor Pierce said, You know, Cecil DeMille, the Hollywood director, was dealing with Green for movie rights to the lost colony. He broke off negotiations when these stones turned up. I've had several letters from DeMille. The movies, Sparks wrote. Gone with the Wind will gross about ten million dollars as a movie. Margaret Mitchell, the writer of Gone with the Wind, has grown rich from royalties almost inside of Emory University where the salary of a full professor is only $3,600 a year. Her raw materials, history, American history. Atlanta is headquarters in the Southeast for press agents representing Hollywood. Had any of these been imposing on Professor Pierce? The professor asked to discuss the possibility of a hoax said, it could have been conceived and executed only by a man of brilliant mind, deranged, but brilliant with great imagination, tremendous creative ability. Sparks continues, I suspected that a Hollywood press agent's expense account would stand the strain of buying his stories, having them carved and strewn around. Moreover, the tourist Hammond, will add here, who found the first stone, said he came from California. At any rate, the professor had too little in his article about him pierce said hammond had been checked in california by the pinkertons and other investigators but he could tell me less about hammond than about eleanor dare i headed for new york and found anthony butita a theatrical press agent in the summers he has charge of publicity for the roanoke island play is there to be a movie of the lost colony who's been making those dare stones he looked frightened word of honor We've never used the stones in our publicity. I got positive orders. Mustn't refer to them. Everyone at Mandio knows they're fakes. I asked how? That man who came there in 1937 during the first season and tried to sell a fake stone just before one turned up at Emory. But you better ask Mr. Fearing. Sparks continues. I saw Bradford Fearing in Raleigh. He's a state senator. election a reward for helping Dare County weather the depression when the fishing industry was flat. One way out was to exploit historical background. Fearing assumed leadership and coaxed prominent North Carolinians into a permanent organization. Senator Fearing told me, this fellow Tony Butita told you about showed up about 10 years ago. He was promoting the coastal highway, Maine to Miami. He came to Roanoke frequently. He would say, Brad, we got a world-beater on this island. He was trying also to promote a real estate development for summer cottagers. Then he proposed a scheme for creating a bogus stone relic of the lost colony to get newspaper headlines. He said we could use one of the English ballast stones uncovered when we prepared to restore Fort Raleigh. He said, we'll cut down an old oak, carve Croatoan on it. In a year or so, we'll have our fishermen catch their nets on it. Kind of discover it another idea of his was to find one of governor white's chests. he had the doggondest ideas he said he could get men who could prepare the inscription carve the rock do the whole job i said now look you'd ruin us your ideas would spoil something fine i warned him the island would resent such talk he continued coming to Roanoke until others took over the management of the coastal highway and felt obliged to change the name to the Ocean Highway. Bishop Alexander in Charleston, South Carolina, now in charge of the highway's advertising, gave me an interesting dossier on the man's past. He left Norfolk several years ago, deeply in debt. But the night Paul Green's play opened, he was in the audience, boldly cranking a full-sized motion picture camera with what ultimate purpose it was never disclosed. Paul Green ordered him to take down his tripod. About that time, a stranger appeared and offered to sell a stone relic of Virginia Dare. He carried it in a suitcase. Several could identify him. Were these incidents connected with the stone of the tourist Hammond? Hammond's own story places him within 50 miles of Roanoke Island. In the same season, a stranger offered to sell a Virginia Dare stone. This much I knew. When Professor Pierce mailed his article December 13, 1940, he had been aware, certainly since October, that a stone had been offered for sale in Mandio. I got his word for it that he never personally troubled to investigate. At Emory, staff and faculty had been suspicious of Hammond from the beginning. Dr. Harvey Warren Cox, the president, said then of the stone, It's a fraud. Why would I let you spend the university's money just to prove it's a fraud? because members of the Candler family had given about $10 million to Emory University. It is sometimes referred to ungraciously as the Coca-Cola University. I received sincere cooperation there in my hunt for light on the Dare stones. When Hammond agreed to show where he had found the stone, university officials arranged for Lagarde Davis, president of the Atlanta Better Business Bureau, to go along. The university was represented by Pierce, Dean Harris Perks, Professor James Lester, geologist, and J.C. McCord of the athletic department. They traveled almost 600 miles before they learned where Hammond was taking them. On the causeway near Edenton, the man brought out a crude map scrawled on a piece of paper bag. He said it was about a quarter of a mile away, but after wandering a mile and a half in the swamp, the professors lost patience. Finally, Hammond saw a barge grounded on the bank of the Chihuahuan. A sand shoal nearby, he said, was where he had washed the rock. Thereafter, he cleaned it with a steel brush, used an indelible lead pencil to intensify the lettering. Whatever his motives, he had frustrated future efforts to determine how long the stone could have been in the swamp. Hammond had said he was traveling in a car with his wife. None ever saw Hammond's car, none ever saw his wife. George Muse, treasurer of Emory, tried to shadow the man one night, but was eluded. Another university man tried to get Hammond's fingerprints on a drinking glass. He failed. Because the inscription on the stone produced by Hammond had reported seven surviving of a band of 24 colonists, after an attack by savages, Pierce figured 17 had been killed. So when Eberhardt turned up with a stone roster of 17 dead, Pierce logically cited the obvious relationship of stone number one to Eberhardt's find. It seemed to me it should be equally true that if the first was a fraud, all were fraudulent. My hasty conclusion got me nowhere with a professor I consulted. He is one of the five scholars authorized by the 34 who met at Bruneau to issue a statement and study further the problems posed by the stones. This matter will be determined finally, he said, only on the basis of internal evidence, something in the inscriptions, or the stones themselves. But the character of Eberhardt, those phony Indian relics he sold? We know about that accusation. Who makes it? An antique dealer. Those Indian relics have yet to be examined competently. This Atlanta region has been shamefully neglected by archaeologists. They prefer to devote themselves to far-off places. But why would Pierce omit from his article facts challenging authenticity of the stones? Oh, he said contemptuously a popular article. Then Sparks turns his attention to some of the stone finders, namely the Jets, who turned in two stones that just happened to turn up on their farm, and his neighbor, named Turner, who also found a stone. Sparks was able to cast a lot of doubt on their stories. And Sparks continues. On page 23 of his manuscript, Professor Pierce wrote, About this time the matter of paying the $500 reward came up. Eberhard had found the stones, AND TESTED AS THEY WERE, NO FLAW COULD BE FOUND. BUT WE DECIDED ON ONE FURTHER TEST. WE TOLD EBERHART EITHER WE WOULD PAY HIM THE FIVE HUNDRED DOLLARS CASH NOW, OR WE WOULD GIVE HIM ONE HUNDRED DOLLARS CASH AND HALF INTEREST IN THAT HILL, VALUELESS UNLESS HIS STONES WERE GENUINE, AND THAT WAS WHERE THE COLONISTS HAD LIVED. HE TOOK THE HALF INTEREST AND THE ONE HUNDRED. WE CONSIDERED THIS STRONG EVIDENCE OF EBERHART'S GOOD FAITH. SPARKS CONTINUES, YET THIS TEST HAD ceased TO BE VALID. On September 17, 1940, Eberhardt surrendered his interest in the 16 acres, and Pierce's gave him $1,400 of Brunel College funds. Previously, he had received a payment of $100, another of $75 made for the Pierce's by Millor, also various sums from the professor or his father, ranging from $10 to $25. Pierce said he was unable to tell me the total. On my first visit, he had said they paid Eberhardt about 500 The revealed investment of Brunel funds in this enterprise is $1,000 to Hammond, 1600 and more to Eberhardt, $50 to Bruce, 25 to Turner, $800 for the Hill. In his article referring to the 16 acres, Pierce wrote, It was impossible to secure the land for 800 That was paid out of our own pockets. By inference, this was said of the $500 reward. On page 16 concerning five trips to North Carolina, he wrote, And that it cost my father and me just about $500 of our own money. President Cox of Emory authorized expense vouchers for at least two of those trips. As Brenau funds were used to pay Hammond, to pay Eberhardt, and to buy the Hill, I assume expenses likewise were paid with the Brenau funds. Pierce wrote, The Hill in South Carolina was uncultivated. Practically speaking, it was abandoned. There is a cotton patch on top of that hill cultivated by Charles Bennett. His father, who died seven or eight years ago, aged 90, lived there all his life. I showed Mr. Bennett photographs of the stones. Never saw anything like them. Been around that hill all my life. They just weren't there. Bennett's brothers and sisters said the same. After my first talk with Pierce, I could find no excuse for believing the story. When 14 stones had accumulated, the only clue was, We go southwest. The hypothetical area to be searched could scarcely have been less than a strip of a 100 miles wide, possibly 500 miles long, representing 50,000 square miles. At times, when and where Eberhardt was searching, many searched. Professors, students, the Pierce family, others, Yet only Eberhardt seemed to be able to find stones, and never when he was watched except for one find he shared with his intimate Turner. Consider the coincidence. Indian trails were often crooked. Eberhardt had placed his first find in South Carolina in a line possibly 300 miles from Hammond's find and about 100 miles from where Eberhardt lives. Yet finally he was making all his finds within four miles of his bed. And the story told on the stones disputes a wealth of legends. As early as 1669-1670, a German explorer encountered bearded Indians in North Carolina who wore clothing and lived in houses. At intervals, others met civilized Indians. They spoke English. Many had gray eyes. They raised crops. Traditions generations old, among a people officially identified in 1885 by the North Carolina legislature as croatans relate that their fathers came from Roanoke. What about these croatans? I asked Pierce. Their existence is not incompatible with the stones, he answered. Ah, but it is. Today around Pembroke, North Carolina, there are 15,000 of these people. About 45 of the common family names checked with names on Governor White's roster. Eleven with names that survive among these people of mixed white and Indian blood, with speech still marked by Elizabethan idiom, are recorded on the stones as early victims of hardships in Indians. Are they descendants of the colonists? The case is circumstantial, but more convincing to me than the stones. These ask you to believe that Eleanor Dare and six white males escorted by four Indians survived crossing a vast region inhabited by tribes mutually jealous and suspicious. By automobile today, the shortest practical route is about 600 miles. From Dr. Pierce's article, the stones have been subjected to every scientific test I could command. What about that, I said? What tests have been made? Well, a test on patination. Jim Lester's report on patination. Lester was the professor of geology at Emory. I read Lester's report. Long paragraphs dealt with the geology. Attached was a special report on Stone 25. The most significant point was the freshness of the rock in the grooves of letters forming Sithence 1593. These had been revealed under a binocular microscope as the freshest in the entire stone. Lester also reported the lower letters give the impression of having been cut within the past few days or weeks when compared with the letters on the upper part. In two instances he had found a letter poorly incised where a lichenous stain showed at places where grooves would have been if the letters had been plainly formed. The implication was that the inscriber had tried to avoid disturbing the lichen growth. Professor Lester had written, I am forced to believe less in the authenticity of this stone than in any It makes me believe that it has been doctored. The lack of lichenous material in the grooves seems to be the first glaring drawback to any of the stones that I have seen. Concerning that stone, Professor Lester says flatly that it is a fake. He told me he never made a thorough geological examination of the stones. That would take, he said, from 200 to 300 hours. I didn't have the time. He is the only geologist who has made any considerable examination of the stones. Lester's report was made July 6, 1939. So, when Pierce's article was mailed, he had long known this stone was, in the opinion of a valid expert, fraudulent. I said, Well, this represents the scientific test made by a competent geologist. You say, every scientific test at my command. Well, he said, that was that was the only scientific test at my command. On page 14, Pierce wrote, Efforts were made then by professional stone cutters to duplicate the wording on similar courts, the first stone, by shortcut methods, sandblasting, drilling, and acids. It couldn't be done. On page 21, as for the stones themselves, the collection, no fraud could be discovered about them. They too were examined as the first stone. The carvings could not be duplicated by the shortcut methods. So I went to New York and I took photographs and geological descriptions of the stones to the Mount Airy Granite Company. The telephone directory showed it to be the most convenient. I asked Abe Goldsmith, in charge, Could you do work like this? Sure, any stone cutter could. Could you make the work look old? All stones are old, but it would be easy enough to age the surface. Tumble it in a barrel. Use acids. Wrap the stone with wet sacking sprinkled with iron filings. There's any number of ways. Then he read from a book, Stone Industries, by Oliver Bowles, Ph.D., U.S. Bureau of Mines. I learned that sandblasting marks an advance in granite carving comparable to the advent of explosives or compressed air drills in rock quarrying. It is more precise, capable of greater detail, and much more rapid than any other carving process. A rock surface is coated with a mask, a glue-like compound. Lettering or designs can be imprinted on this surface. With a scalpel, the coating is removed from parts to be cut below the surface. A stream of fine carborundum under air pressure is then used to carve the design. At Emory, Professor Lester told me he had taken Hammond Stone to a stone carving plant at Marietta, Georgia. Their older workmen said they could reproduce it with hand tools. But the younger guys said they'd prefer the sandblasting method. Lester himself had carved an inscription on quartz using the sandblasting method. I asked the geologist if Eberhardt's stones might have been inscribed by sandblasting. He said, you could scratch them with your fingernail. You could do the job using the head of a 10-penny nail as a cutting tool. To Professor Pierce, I read aloud from his article statements in conflict with these findings. He looked unhappy, then conceded. Well, that part's not accurate. Pierce wrote, the language of the stone was declared by competent scholars to be Elizabethan in character, spelling, and idiom. There are 704 words on the 46 rocks by which to test Elizabethan usage no evidence of hoax in this regard has been detected by the many scholars who have examined the stones. I question this. He added the words primeval and reconnoiter, had braised doubts in some. Chided for not having said so in his paper, he said, I didn't think the post would want a technical article. Technical? One word is within nine years of his being as anachronistic as technicolor movies purporting to show Grant and Lee at Appomattox. Another word violates reason nearly as much as an effort to show James Monroe speaking his second inaugural address into a microphone. In New York I saw Dr. Samuel Tannenbaum, Elizabethan scholar and paleographer. Dr. Tannenbaum is the author of Shakespeare's penmanship, The Book of Sir Thomas More. Shakespeare forgeries in the Rebels account, the handwriting of the Renaissance. He writes in the Gothic script of the Elizabethans almost effortlessly. Dr. Tannenbaum examined photographs of the stones a full 20 minutes. Then he said, there isn't a Gothic letter here, and this settles the whole matter. The forgery becomes obvious to anyone who knows how the Elizabethans wrote. In England in 1590, only men like Francis Bacon Edmund Spencer, Walter Raleigh, Philip Sidney, could write Roman script. Few enough could write it all. Even those men wrote their text in Gothic, but as a mark of culture, used Roman letters in their signatures. Every letter on these stones is a Roman letter. The best man in England would have slipped, made here and there a Gothic letter. Following Dr. Tannenbaum's advice, I had the 712 words on the stones assorted and counted. Without variation of spelling, the word layeth appears nine times. Chew, 11. Eleanor, 26. Dare, 32. Father, 24. Savage, 18. Mercy, 7. Hither, 5. Upon, 5. Englishman, 3. Said Dr. Tannenbaum, No Elizabethan was ever so consistent in spelling. Francis Bacon spelled his own name something like 30 different ways. Walter Raleigh spelled his name, I think, 45 ways. Elizabethans had no principles of spelling because they had no dictionary. In your situation, the consistency is supposed to have been observed through three years of forest wandering by people shut off from white civilization. Shakespeare had a vocabulary of 15,000 words. Next best was John Milton with 8,000 words. The average person today has at most 3,000 words. Isn't it extraordinary to find primeval and reconnoiter? when they do not appear in Shakespeare. Dr. Tannenbaum is Professor Pierce's own witness. He's one of a number invited, but was unable to attend the Brunel Conference. Dr. Morrison of Harvard wrote me, I believe them, the stones, to be okay. The chief obstacles are three words, trail, primeval, and reconnoiter. According to the Oxford Dictionary, the earliest known of primeval was in Urquhart's Rabelais, 1653 this is 66 years after the colonists said farewell to governor white reconnoiter according to the oxford dictionary has not been found earlier than 1707 in english in 1590 the word trail t-r-a-l-e was used to denote the scent of a quarry rather than a pathway i wrote dr morris tilly of the university of michigan where their combing manuscripts not available to Oxford Dictionary editors. Dr. Tilly says, An assistant assigned by me to examine the files of the early, modern English dictionary files can find nothing earlier for primeval and reconnoiter than is in the Oxford Dictionary. Dr. Tilly added, I examined once the pictures of the Dare stones and felt convinced they were clearly forgeries. In our conversations, Pierce several times reminded me they had never said the stones were authentic. Nevertheless, skepticism makes him glum and uncommunicative. He has another attitude for people who appear to accept the stones as genuine. They are intelligent and imaginative. Despite the fire escape clause, he has lectured on the stones, so he told me, about 50 times, appearing three times on the radio. At Emory he is regarded as a sparkling lecturer. Brunel College has made use of the collection as a means of publicizing the school. Replicas of some stones were displayed in George's exhibit at the New York World's Fair, and as a result, June 9, 1940, was celebrated as Brunel College Day. On my second visit to Gainesville, I asked to see that which I supposed Pierce would be least eager to show me, his correspondence with Cecil B. DeMille. To my surprise, I learned Pierce not Hollywood, had initiated the business. Writing DeMille, October 25th, 1940, four days after the conference had reported, the preponderance of evidence points to the authenticity and so on and so on. His first letter, according to press dispatches, you have been to Roanoke Island, become interested in the lost colony of Roanoke. I do not know how much you know of the investigation of the last three years undertaken since Mr. Green wrote his pageant dealing with the lost colony. In addition to these stones, a diary of the colony subsequent to Mr. Green's treatment, we have found, too, a cave, a cave in which is carved the legend, Eleanor Dare Eyre, Sit Hence, 1593. In this connection I would refer to a play written by Miss Maud Fiske Lafleur of the Brunel College faculty, which deals with the history of the lost colony subsequent to Mr. Green's treatment. Miss Lafleur calls her play, This Heritage. I am sure Miss LaFleur would be glad to send you a copy upon request. We would be glad to receive you or your accredited representative at Brunel College and provide any further help in our power. I gave him a look. I had wasted days running this trail in reverse, suspecting Hollywood had imposed on the professor. Mr. DeMille's reply said, The lost colony data is extremely interesting and with the probable verification by you and a committee whose integrity cannot be questioned. "'makes the Dare story one of the most fascinating in American history. "'There may be the making of a motion picture in The Lost Colony. "'I am studying the subject.'" Pierce replied, "'Perfectly satisfactory for you to have copies made of the translations. "'I said in my last letter that Miss Maud Fisk Lafleur wrote a very interesting play "'in the light of the information provided by the Stones. "'I am sure that she will be glad to place a copy of her play in your hands upon your request.'" I hope very much that you will come to a decision to make the picture covering one of the most fascinating stories in American history. Questioned about this, Professor Pierce revealed that Miss LaFleur had written her pageant with his help. It was presented in Gainesville last summer and is scheduled to be performed again this summer, rivaling the play at Roanoke, which opens July 3rd. The latter now has been underwritten by the state of North Carolina to the extent of $10,000 a year. And the last part of the Haywood Sparks massive smackdown. I had seen Paul Green. He told me whoever inscribed those stones plagiarized at least the framework of my play. There is no basis in history for such an Eleanor Dare. Her name is mentioned. She had a child, Virginia. After research, I conceived the need of a pioneering type of woman capable of leadership. As for movies, I didn't discuss this with Demille I couldn't sell without consent of the Roanoke organization. We all hope the play will be produced during many summers on Roanoke Island. The community has been helped through the depression by those who have come to see the play. Sparks continues, Professor Pierce has been working very hard on these stones. I found something that might be of news to him. One morning in my hotel before breakfast, I found a word staring at me from a picture of the back face of stone number 15 which Turner says he found all by himself in Hall County, Georgia, in March 1939. I let out a shout to my companion. I find what looks to me like Emory. If it's an acrostic, there ought to be other concealed words. He said, how's Atlanta, Georgia? True enough, Atlanta, GE, and Emory seem to form a band around this rock. They are as easily read as many words deciphered by Professor Pierce. Then accepting literally the inscriptions boast, we put much clue by wage. I looked for more clues. We found Shed, vertically arranged acrostic style. Then we found Pierce, reading up the front face. A little forcing as the cryptographers express it was needed, yet thereafter it was impossible for me to look at the stone and not see Atlanta and Emory. Is it an acrostic? I don't know, but I'm sure Eleanor Dare has nothing to do with it. Then I found what seems to me the final word in this matter. It is in Fair Roman capital letters, beginning at the top of the stone. When a picture of it is held sidewise, a child will be able to read the letters F-A-K-E. Thus ends Sparks' treatment on the subject of the Dare stones, which screams fake, beginning with stone number one. This investigative report changed public and scientific opinion and is one reason why you probably never heard of the Dare stones. It also shortened Dr. Pierce's life and ruined his reputation. Was he too willing to accept that first stone as authentic? Or was he involved in the hoax? I think he believed he had found a truly genuine item, which is why he invested so much of his time and money and reputation to get to the rest of the story. I also believe Investigator Sparks tried to send us in the right direction to find the lost colonists and solve the mystery by following the trail of descendants and their names. And yes, matching a name to a colonist's name may not be considered irrefutable evidence, but when a number of them match up with descendants of the Crotan tribe and elsewhere, that's a very plausible explanation as to who survived and possibly where they ended up. And now we have DNA and archaeological research to help us further. From the early 1600s to the middle 1700s, European colonists reported encounters with grey-eyed American Indians or with English Welsh-speaking Indians who said they were descended from the colonists. In 1669, a Welsh cleric named Morgan Jones was taken captive by the Tuscarora. He feared for his life, but a visiting Doweg Indian war captain spoke to him in Welsh and assured him that he would not be killed. The Doeg warrior ransomed Jones and his party, and Jones remained with their tribe for months as a preacher. In 1701, surveyor John Lawson encountered members of the Hatteras tribe living on Roanoke Island, who claimed some of their ancestors were white. Lawson wrote that several of the Hatteras tribesmen had gray eyes. Chief Mandio's tribe, the Croatan Indians, was eventually designated as the Cherokee Indians of Robeson County by an act of the General Assembly of North Carolina, ratified March 11, 1913, and comprised a body of mixed-blood people residing chiefly in Robeson County, North Carolina. A few of the same class of people reside in Bladen, Columbus, Cumberland, Scotland, and Hoke Counties, North Carolina, and in Sumter, Marlborough, and Dillon Counties, South Carolina. It is also said that a similar people called Redbones reside in these counties in South Carolina, but I think it probable that they belong to the same class of people as those residing in Robeson County, North Carolina. In the 11th census of 1890, under the title North Carolina Indians, they are described as generally white, showing the Indian mostly in actions and habits. They were enumerated by the regular census enumerator in part as whites that they are clannish and hold with considerable pride to the tradition that they are the descendants of the Croatans of the Raleigh period of North Carolina and Virginia. And that's a huge clue to our investigation in Part 2, that although the colony disappeared in 1591, 300 years later, in 1890, many members of the Croatan tribe were still white, but considered now and proud to be Indian. So we're going to be working with the theory that colonists at Roanoke took refuge with the Croatan Indians during that first winter when Governor John White didn't return. In 1719, a group of visitors found a tribe of Indians with light skin, gray-blue eyes, and light brown hair that spoke Elizabethan English. These Indians told these visitors that their ancestors talked from a book. Their customs were similar to the early English Roanoke colony. The Croatan, Cheraw, and other Carolina Indians were ancestors of the present-day Lumbees. Many Lumbee Indians to this day declare that they are descendants. In 1998, East Carolina University organized an archaeological investigation to see if any evidence from the Roanoke colonists could be found on Croatan, now known as Hatteras Island, which is further south from Roanoke Island along the same stretch of sand that defines the Outer Banks and you'll find those reports and much more in Part 2. We'll be able to place some of the colonists at Hatteras Island and some on the Chowan River at Site X. One part of our mystery has been solved. For the remainder and much larger part, join us next week for The Lost Colony, Missing Persons Found. We'll turn to reports from Captain John Smith, William Strachey, and a host of others who recorded in writing conversations with various tribes in the years soon after the disappearance of the colony. We'll examine breakthroughs in DNA research, written records, oral tradition, and the preponderance of Indian names matching those of the missing colonists. We'll search family trees and local legend. The stories are amazing. Altogether, it's the answer to America's greatest mystery. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch all our shows at 1001storiespodcast.com We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. For now, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.